Well, one of my favorite movies has this uh, scene in it where people, all right, actually they're animated jungle creatures, right, uh, come up with this idea to end a drought that has come upon their land in, in, the, in the deserts of Africa. They come up with the idea that their leader, rather, comes up with the idea that they need to make a sacrifice. They need to make a sacrifice to the volcano gods, and so if someone would go into the volcano, then maybe the volcano gods would be just happy enough to then provide rain on their land. Will it work? No. They don't know. They have no idea. I don't know if it actually works or not. I only watched this much of the clip again to remind myself this morning on YouTube, but it points to a very, very important Thing, and that is the act of propitiation. It's a big Bible word, but it means to satisfy a god. And so the, what they were trying to do was satisfy the volcano god and thereby have rain fall because the god would be satisfied by their sacrifice. My question is this, though. Is this how it works with our god? That God is an angry deity that's withholding things from us and he just needs a sacrifice and then everything else will be good. The real question is this. How can sinful human beings be justified in the sight of a perfect, holy God? What sacrifice could we possibly give to appease a perfect, holy God? That church is the central question of every single religion on the planet earth and it is the heart of biblical christianity and it's what the apostle paul is going to answer for us today so if you're not there head over to romans chapter 3 last week the apostle paul took us through the doctrines of original sin and total depravity meaning because of our first parents adam and eve their disobedience their sin spread like a curse throughout all of humanity and that is infected every part of our nature and affected, affected every part of our behavior. Worse yet, we're all accountable to God because of that. Under his law, we will be subject one day to judgment under his law. And I, if you recall, I kind of left you there last week. I'm sorry, not sorry. I had to do it because the passage didn't answer the question yet. The passage just left us condemned under sin. And, and I hope you kind of felt that desperation a little bit. How then can we be justified? What's the answer? If it's not obedience to the law, because that's out, how then can we be justified? And that is the central question of our faith, and that is what Paul is going to answer today. Look at verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested or has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Finally, he comes out and says, after three weeks of just telling us the curse of sin, three weeks of telling us that we have no hope, three weeks of telling us that everyone has sinned, he finally gives us the answer. He comes right out and says it point blank. How are we justified? How do we attain righteousness? Through faith in Christ Jesus. There's one and only answer. And a few things to note as we just pick apart those first few verses. The question again, how do we obtain righteousness? How does God declare us only or innocent? One and only answer. And he says it twice. Faith in Christ Jesus to those who believe. 
right? You get how important that is and how central that is. And this is probably one of the critical, if not the most critical doctrines in all of our faith, which is justification. How am I made right? How am I declared innocent? Justification by faith. And we also note, again, this is selective justification. It only comes through faith. Faith in what? Well, he says, Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did, and why it mattered. What was, what was the solution to our sins? Of course, his righteous life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial, his death, right, and his resurrection, his glorious resurrection. That's what you need to believe in. To put it in another way, the cross is the ground of our justification, and the faith, our faith is the means of that justification. Our faith right, is grounded in the work of Jesus Christ, but our faith is the means of that justification. We also note that, again, this is apart from the law, just like he said last week in 320. Right? The works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. This is apart from the law. This is, this is without the law. This is, this is independent of the law. Why? Because we cannot be justified by obedience to the law. Because that's off the table. We've all broken the law. It's already done. By the time we were two years old, we're done. We're out. We, we, we have already broken the law of God. And so it's impossible for us. Justification by faith has been said by Martin Luther as the article by which the church stands or falls. So, not a big passage this week. Nothing really, you know, too important. This is central to our faith, church. This is the bedrock of our faith. It was the material cause of the Protestant Reformation. Sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. And the funny thing is, that's not actually news, right? Paul's not changing the way God works here. Justification by faith has always been the way that it works. One of the common pastoral questions is, how were the Old Testament saints saved? They were saved the same way we were. They looked ahead to the coming of the Messiah. They didn't know his name, and the work hadn't been done, but they believed in the Messiah to come, just like us. We're just on the other side of the cross. We know that he came. We know that he did, he did the work, and we know that his name is Jesus Christ. So, Justification by faith, and even as we'll see next week, it started with Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. This is not a new plan. Paul's not changing anything here. This has always been the plan. This is the difference, church, between every historical or between historical Orthodox Christianity, again, and every other religion on the planet, right? We don't obey the law to be declared innocent. Right? We can't do that. Yet every other religion on the planet will say, obey this, don't do this, do this, wear this, eat this, drink this, go here, do this pilgrimage, whatever, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be justified. Every other religion on the planet. Biblical Christianity, orthodox, apostolic, historic, biblical Christianity says, guess what? You're all sinners. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you to be justified. You believe in him, and you are justified. The moment you come to believe, you are justified. It is a declarative work of God. It happens once. You believe and you are justified. You go from the guilty column to the innocent column in one shot. But then you get after it. 
Then you get after it growing in sanctification. Every other religion says sanctification comes first. And maybe when you get to that nice level of whatever God will be happy with you, then you might be justified. If you get those two things confused, it's spiritually deadly. Because we'll continue to work for our justification. We'll continue to try to be, uh, have God's favor. He says, you have nothing to offer me. I love you guys. But we have nothing to offer God except our sin. He knows that. That's why he had to do the work. Why is it necessary that he did the work? Well, we talked about it last week. Total depravity. Everyone is a sinner. Welcome to Highlands Bible Church. So let's look at it. He says it again. Look at the second half of verse 22. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says there's no difference. There's no distinction. I don't care who you are. If you're a human being, if you're Jew, if you're Gentile, if you're American, if you're whatever, if you're a human being, you have sinned and you have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Remember the background of this a couple weeks ago? The Jews were saying, hey, we're, we're the nation of Israel, right? Don't we get some special treatment here? Like we're God's people. Paul says, nope, not at all. We're all alike under sin. And he says it again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? That's kind of a churchy thing to say, right? God has created us. In his image, we have his image stamped on our soul, and so the idea is for us to reflect back that image to the world. However, the image has been marred by original sin, so that reflection isn't as bright as it should be, right? So our reflection of God's glory in our lives actually falls short. If you fall short, right, it means you're not doing what you're capable of doing, In the sense, though, we're not really capable of even doing that. We've lost our ability to even do that. We all have fallen short. Another way of looking at that is we have a lack. We have a lack of God's glory in our lives, and that is because of our condition in sin. Okay, but to be blunt, this sounds a whole lot like an us problem. Like, we're the ones that got ourselves into this. We're not reflecting God's glory, so God could be like, well, you got yourself into that. But there's a beautiful word in verse 24. Did you guys catch it? And are justified, watch this, by his grace. Isn't that a beautiful word? We don't deserve any of this. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace. When I was downstairs with the kiddos a few Sundays ago during the Ask Pastor Mike and Miss Mel section program, one sweetie cutie face asked me, what is grace? And I tried to explain it by contrasting it with mercy, right? Mercy is not getting something that you deserve, right? If I go booking down Route 94 at 60 miles an hour, I deserve a ticket. And if they let me go, I should have gotten a ticket, right? But that's mercy, right? Grace is getting something else, something better that I couldn't earn, that I didn't deserve. And look at it in this case. We certainly deserve hell. It's God's mercy that he doesn't give us hell. But what does he give us in grace? He gives us forgiveness. He gives us justification. He gives us adoption. It is so far beyond mercy and so undeserved. He lavishes grace on us. God's grace is redeeming us. 
meaning paying a price. That's a, a word in the slave market. You are redeeming somebody. You could buy someone out of slavery. God purchases us, purchases us out of slavery by his blood. And we'll see that in a minute. He's redeeming us. Grace is free to us. Paul says we're justified by his grace as a gift. I like better freely. Freely justifies us. A little bit closer to the Greek. The idea that it doesn't cost us anything, but it certainly costs God everything. And then we continue to sacrifice our lives through the Spirit's power that he gives us. This passage is all about justification by faith. And I want us to walk away today with three things that we can learn about justification by faith from this passage. Here's the first one. Justification by faith is a gift from our abundantly gracious God. Justification by faith is a gift from our abundantly gracious God. And I can think of probably no better passage to go to to back that up. Look at Ephesians 2. 8 and 9. Many of you have this memorized. For by grace, there's our word again, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. You see that again? Intertwined with this passage in Romans, Paul says the same thing. God lavishes his grace on us by justifying us. And none of us deserve it because we've fallen short of his glory. This is also one of those times when I need to speak to both groups of people here today because there's always two groups of people here anytime we gather together. There are those that are in Christ and there are those that are outside of Christ. And to those who are outside of Christ, who have not bowed the knee to him, who have not placed your full faith in Christ, who have not done what Paul is talking about, who have not been declared innocent through faith, I call you to repentance today. If this is you today, do this today. Understand where you have been, that you have fallen short of God's glory and that we are subject to his judgment and he's offered this to you as a gift and do this today. Put your faith in Jesus. If you want to talk to me about it, it's my favorite thing to talk about. You can also talk to one of our elders as well. But to those in Christ, church, highlands, Christians, do we get this? Do we understand the magnitude of what this is? Do we see this incredible gift that our justification is from a gracious God who lavishes this on us and we didn't deserve it? Instead, we were stuck in sin. And he's the one who comes and plucks us out of literally the fires of hell. And we place our faith in what Jesus has done. Do we, do we walk around every day thinking about this? Here's a great Puritan prayer that convicted me, and so I'll pass it on to you. No poor creature stands in need of divine grace more than I do, and yet none abuses it more than I have done and still do. How many times do we, do we think about this? Do we understand the magnitude of what he has done for us? And I'm going to give us three suggested ways that the truth of this justification by faith from our gracious God should affect us in our daily lives. First, it should affect our identity. This is a, a critical word for understanding who we are, right? Everybody's searching for identity. And justification by faith for a Christian should be our sole identity. 
Straight up, our status as sinners justified by grace through faith should be the most important definition of who we are. You see like on social media, right? You got your, your bio, you got your Twitter handle, whatever. And I'm always like, what do I write on this thing? You know, and it's just, so many times we'll see sinners saved by grace, right? I love that. It's the first thing we should think of. We are sinners saved by grace more than who we are and in our careers, our status as parents, more than how much money we have in the bank or don't have, more than the health we have or don't have, more than our background, our ethnicity, the first thing we should think of with our identity is that we are sinners saved by grace. This is where idolatry creeps in and our identity gets wrapped up in anything and everything other than the identity of sinners saved by grace. And if we then place our hope and, and our, our status and our comfort and everything in that identity, what's going to happen? It's going to fail us because the only one that will not fail us is Christ. I just want to flip that identity idea for just a second because we have to understand ourselves through justification by faith. But church, here's another big one. We also have to understand the identity of our heavenly Father. We have to understand that he is not an ogre in the sky waiting for us to mess up. Standing coldly aloof from us, not caring about us, not involved in our lives. We have to understand the identity of our heavenly father. That he abundantly, willingly lavished his grace upon us. How should that affect our daily life as our identity? It has to. That we have a heavenly father that loves us and that is for us. And the central proof that we need to go back to when we wonder, is God up there? Does he care? The central proof we need to go back to time and time again is the cross. And we remember, yes, he did that for me. I think uh, often of Romans 8.32. I am stealing so many verses from future sermons that when we get there, it's going to be... We'll have to remind each other of it. Romans 8.32, look at this. Talk about the identity of Christ and what it means. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's our identity from the Heavenly Father. That's who we are in the Heavenly Father, and that's who our Heavenly Father is. Go back to the cross. He gave everything for me to be graciously forgiven. Is he not going to see me through my Tuesday? Of course he is, as we seek to glorify him. So our identity must be grounded in our status as justified through faith. Second, our destiny. Yes, I kind of hesitated using that word, but it rhymed with identity, so I threw it in there. I'm not going prosperity gospel on you. But when we understand the significance of justification by faith through grace, we can now live our lives with the empowerment, right, of being justified through faith with the Holy Spirit's power. That is the engine that drives us to live God-glorifying lives. And church, there is not a more fulfilling, satisfying, joy-filled, purpose-driven life, sorry, that will... Some of you will get that later. That <laughs> there, there is not a better, more fulfilling life than the one that is centered on our destiny 
right, to do that through our status of being justified by faith. It's got to start there. And as we, as we live lives, we, we feel this. When we realize this and we, we come to faith, we are, in a sense, restored to our original purpose, right? Adam and Eve in the garden before sin, they had that purpose of, of reflecting back God's glory, and they did it perfectly until the fall. When we come to Christ, right, that, that is restored. We can get back to doing what we're supposed to be doing, working out our salvation with fear and trembling as he works in us, right? Growing in sanctification, doing good works, growing in the image and likeness of God. And so justification by faith has tremendous impact on our destiny. And third, of course, justification by faith has tremendous impact on our eternity. Think about it. When an alarm goes off or when your wrist starts buzzing and telling you it's time to wake up, right? And the first thing that comes into your mind is whatever's you remember, 30 seconds, you know, what, what you left the day before and maybe what you're facing today. Church, I would challenge you to remember this, and this is not mine, somebody said it, but remember that you just woke up under grace and not under wrath. Remind yourself that you have been justified by faith, that God has purchased you, that God has redeemed you. Start your day thinking that no matter what yesterday had or no matter what today has, I'm justified by faith, through, through faith in Jesus Christ because of the overwhelming grace of my Heavenly Father. That'll shape your perspective on a day, and that's what needs to. And as we think about, okay, I'm going through this life, but my eternity is sure. He lavished his grace on me, and he opened my eyes to my sinful depravity, and in mercy he looked upon my inability to do anything about it, and in grace he lavished salvation on me through faith in Jesus Christ. This is preaching the gospel to yourself. This is what has to be going around our head all day because what else goes around our, our, our head all day? Nonsense, right? The little voice that reminds us of, of who we think we are or what we messed up or what we're doing or what's wrong or what's going on or what's stressing us out or what's making us anxious. Church, we gotta talk to ourselves and we gotta talk to ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ centered on justification by faith. We are literally plucked from the fires of hell and we are set on a course of eternity with our Heavenly Father. The most important thing, our eternal destiny is secure by faith in Jesus Christ. How much smaller should our life's problems be when we look at them in the perspective of an eternity secured by justification by faith? It should be quite smaller. Justification, a gift from God, a gracious God to be received by faith, has profound impacts on our identity, on our destiny, on our eternity. So how is this justification accomplished? I am glad you asked. All right, look at verse 25. I'm going to have to read this again because this is just like a whole, Paul's like this running start. He's like vomiting this justification by faith. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is probably my favorite scripture passage in the world, so I'll apologize again in advance. My other one is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's like a toss-up. Verse 25 tells us that God put forward. He put him on public display. The, The Greek here has the sense of making something public that has been planned beforehand. So it's like when you unveil something, like on a much lower level, maybe think of a surprise party or something. You put together, it's just like, aha, this is everything I've been working on, right? So it's like God, that idea of God putting this forward. This has been my plan. Here it is. Here's the redemption. God put Jesus forward. Did you catch that? Who put Jesus on the cross? Right? Not the Romans, not the Jews. God did. It's God's plan. And he did for us. Jesus certainly went willingly. Right? Remember he said, no one takes my life from me. I give up my own accord. Right? But God is the one. This is his plan. The Father's plan. He said, God put him forward. Justification, the first and foremost idea of God the Father. And what did the Father put forward the Son to do? Here comes a really big Bible word. Propitiation. ESV translates this Greek word here as propitiation, which in English means to satisfy by sacrifice. We need to resist the temptation again here to think, as some of our atheist opponents will, will do, it's just like, well, God just wanted a sacrifice, just like the, the volcano God. Just, just give me a sacrifice and then I'll be happy. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We have to resist the temptation. Jesus became our propitiatory sacrifice, meaning that he, his sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's wrath for sin. And remember whose idea that was. It was God's. One theological dictionary defines it this way, an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed against sin. J.I. Packer, in Knowing God, said, A gospel without propitiation is at its heart another gospel than the one Paul preached. The implications of this must not be evaded. The sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, satisfied the wrath of God for sin. That is propitiation. And that there is no other way. But, but there's a deeper tie-in here with the word propitiation, the idea of propitiation to the rest of the Bible, to the Old Testament. In some translations, if you're rolling CSB this morning, I think KJV has it as well. We see the Greek word for propitiation translated here as mercy seat. And if you don't know what a mercy seat is, if you're new to the Old Testament, you're scratching your head. So because I love you, I have a picture of the mercy seat. Mercy seat, there's the Ark of the Covenant that that God instructed Moses uh, to build that was in the tabernacle and then soon was in the temple. The mercy seat is the top of the Ark in between the cherubim where the presence of God would be, where forgiveness would be given. One reason I realized uh, this passage, right, I was thinking, frequent question when we were going through the Old Testament, people are the... uh, Ten Commandments. People are like, well, if we're not supposed to worship heavenly things according to the second commandment, how come there are angels on the ark? Well, one reason, nobody really saw the ark. It was, it was behind the Holy of Holies, right? But the second reason is because when Jesus fulfills this in the gospel, it's going to make so much more sense. 
Because that was the place. The angels delivered the law to Moses, right, as the mediators, right, or as the messengers better, right? But it could only be fulfilled permanently by Jesus Christ. He's the one who will give the permanent forgiveness. One commentator explains how this works. The high priest is to enter the Holy of Holies once a year under the Old Covenant, right, and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of a sacrificial victim, thereby making atonement. In the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, this mercy seat came to be applied generally to the place of atonement. By referring to Christ as this mercy seat, Paul would be inviting us to view Christ as the new covenant equivalent or antitype to this old covenant place of atonement and derivatively to the ritual of atonement itself. The quote says, this is where atonement will happen. What, what the ark was pointing to, what the old covenant was pointing to in the mercy seat will be ultimately satisfied by Jesus Christ. He ties the old covenant and the new covenant together again one more time. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies, propitiates the wrath of God for sin, and he's also the fulfillment of the very nature of the ceremony of atonement to begin with. He's the very place of it. And all Paul, once again, points to it that this is all faith. We believe in this. We understand this. And so why was this needed? In verse 25, Paul said that God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, right? He, t- he answers that question. Why was it needed? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We're looking at the old covenant there. In his, in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. And so let's think Old Testament. Let's think in the Old Testament, people under the Old Covenant sacrificed bulls and goats and sheep and things like that, right? Sheep, rather. The animal sacrifices were not actual, true, full forgiveness of sin. God, in a sense, was, was passing over those sins. They were, it was temporary or even symbolic forgiveness that looked forward to what? Ultimate, complete, perfect fulfillment, fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Right? Hebrews 10.4 tells us clearly, it's impossible for the bull, blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It would only symbolically do so, but it has to point to the permanent forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. John Stott in uh, Cross of Christ wrote that God allowed sin to accumulate as he was looking forward, right, to his plan that he would put forward. Ultimately would be forgiven in Jesus Christ. There was a real sense that God didn't actually forgive the the sins of the Old Testament folks. He, He bore with them until they could be completely and permanently forgiven in Jesus Christ. A great example of this is, is David after Bathsheba. Right? Many of us are on the, the five-day reading plan. We just cruised through the whole reign of David, and we got to Bathsheba. And remember how that story worked, that, that David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover up his adultery. And then Nathan the prophet comes in, confronts him, and David immediately is convicted, confesses his sin, and he says, I've sinned against the Lord And Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you. And every time you read that, you should say, how? How? He didn't 
There was no sacrifice. He didn't go sacrifice a bull or a goat. He just said, the Lord has forgiven you. Think about the connections with David, right? The son of David, Jesus coming through the line of David. Why? Because he was looking ahead to the perfect sacrifice of the Messiah. That's how. And when we see Jesus on the cross, the propitiation of it, we see that this is God saying, look, this is my righteousness. I, I temporarily or symbolically forgave sins of the Old Testament, but now I am vindicating my righteousness. I have to punish sin. I would not be a just God if I didn't punish sin. I have to punish it. And so I did with my son. And what about us today in the new covenant? Well, Paul goes on to say it was to show his righteousness at the present time, right now, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Both of those statements have to do with showing his righteousness, right? When God punishes sin, he shows he's a righteous God. He's a fair God. He's a just God. What judge would be worth his salt who then just lets someone go who was guilty of sin? God has to punish sin. His righteousness demands it. But then watch this. He's not only just, he is the justifier of those who have their faith in Jesus Christ. Remember a few minutes ago how we said that God is not like a false God who just wants a sacrifice, just wants somebody to go into the volcano so he can be happy again, right? No, God's not like that at all because here's the critical difference. God's the one that provides the sacrifice. God's the one that provides the sacrifice that he requires. He is just and he is the justifier. The sacrifice is at his own, his own son. Church, there is no other religion, no other worldview, no other anything on the planet where the God whom we are seeking to worship and appease is the very means of that salvation himself. It blows the mind. And so the second thing we learn about justification is this. Justification by faith is provided by our perfectly just God. It's provided by. Our justification is literally, provi- literally provided by him. Look at this. God simultaneously acts to vindicate himself and justify us at the same time. He works for, watch this, his good and our good at the same time. Piper puts it like this. Here's another profound reality that transforms the way I think about everything. God's acting for his own sake and his acting for my sake are not at odds. They are, as Edwards says, not to be set in opposition but coincide with one another and are implied in one another. Or to say it another way, God's glory and my good are never, ever in conflict. How do we know that? The cross. We look back to the cross. You say that God acted to vindicate his own holiness, and he actually paved the way, prepared the sacrifice for me that I didn't deserve. He acts for his good, his glory, and my good. And those things are never, ever in conflict. How is biblical Christianity different than any other religion? How is it actually the only true religion? Well, maybe we can start by saying it's the only religion where God is the very means of justification that he himself demands. To use a human example, think about it this way. We're, we're convicted dead to rights of murder, right? We, we are in court. 
we are convicted in an open and shut case, and we are sentenced to die. And then at the sentencing, the judge says, I will die in your place. That's what we're talking about here. The judge, God, says, I will die in your place. I am still just because sin is still getting punished. Nobody's getting away with anything, but I'm the one who's going to justify you. That should be mind-blowing to us. Justification is provided by our perfectly just God. And once again, Paul says this is only effective to us through faith. Again, think about what our country will celebrate tomorrow, Memorial Day. Men and women who have given their lives so that others may live in freedom. And certainly something to be honored and celebrated with remembrance, but also something that points to this greatest reality. He provided our justification, our freedom from sin, at the cost of his own life. So great. We have now explored the intricacies of how our justification works, but now how does that affect the way we live? That's where Paul lands the plane. Look at verse 27. Then what? It's almost like he answers the question. So what? So then, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Like the third time he said that in the last chapter and a half. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised through faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul now re-engages with his Jewish brothers, right? That's where he started with or started from, right, that point. And he says, you, you can almost feel the, the argument from his Jewish brothers. He's like, so what are you saying, Paul? What about the law? It's done? We just throw it out? And Paul says, no, not at all. By no means. He says, well, you're boasting, by the way. You're boasting in what? Obedience to the law. That can't happen. That's off the table. That's not possible. It is excluded. It should not exist. By what law, they might ask. It can't be the law of works, because that's impossible. Now, theoretically, right, if we could obey the law and could earn our own justification, which we can't, that'd be something to boast in. Did it, nailed it, lived the perfect life. Never sinned once, right? Completely impossible, right? But if it was, in theory, we could boast on that. Paul says, because it's not, you have no possible way of boasting in that whatsoever. It's removed, not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. I'm using air quotes, right? The law of faith. He's using law as principle, by the principle of faith. He's using a play on words that speaks directly to the heart of his Jewish brothers. You stake your righteousness on obedience to the law, but you just blew that out of the water water, because you just disobeyed, right? We've all fallen short. There's a different law at work here, the law of faith. Since you can't be justified by obedience because we're all sinners, there has to be a different law. There has to be a different principle. And he goes on to make the case that there's only one God. He's the God of everyone, Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised, and he will justify what according to this law? By faith. That's the rule of justification now. That's the law of justification now. It can't be by obedience to the Old Testament. It has to be by, by faith. 
Can you feel this, this tension? Can you imagine being Jewish and then saying, the law is everything I have? Like, I memorize the law. I live by the law. I see all the sacrifices and the festivals and the food laws and all of that. And you could feel it in verse 31 where they finally say, Paul, imitating or expecting their, their opposition. So what, Paul? Do we just throw out the law by this faith you're talking about? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We don't throw it away. We uphold it. Faith actually establishes the law. Meaning, after you've been justified by faith, then you have the desire, then you have the ability to carry out what the law demands, but not before. Third thing about justification by faith, it is the foundation for obeying the law. It's the foundation for obeying the law. Remember Ephesians 2? Sweet passage to remind ourselves of justification by faith through grace. What's verse 10 say? We are saved then what? For good works, which then he prepared in advance for us to do. After we're saved, we get after it. Not before. Because we don't have any foundation to obey before. We're sinners that have fallen short. Once we are justified, then we can get after it. One commentator put it like this. Once justified by faith, believers are liberated to live righteously and carry out the law. We can't obey the law for our justification, but after we are justified by faith, we obey the law. We do the good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. Obedience, think of it this way, obedience follows faith. We can't earn our, our, our favor. We can't earn our justification by obedience. That's off the table. God justifies us, lavishes grace upon us. We believe through faith, now we obey to the glory of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Recall during the Ten Commandments, we, we talked about the three uses of the law for Christians today, a map, a mirror, and a muzzle. The map is to show us the path to holiness. We look at the Ten Commandments and we say, how do we grow more mature as a believer? Well, we obey these Ten Commandments. And we, we ask for the power to do that. It's a map for holiness. It's also a mirror because as we fail, we look at the perfect law and we're like, well, I failed. We see that reflection back to us. We see that conviction, right? And we remember the forgiveness and we keep going. It's also a muzzle. Hopefully, it's a muzzle. Hopefully, it, it stops us. It restrains us from sinning, right? Because we're reminded of God's law, morally imprinted on our hearts. But I need to caution us, right? Even as we continue, we say, okay, great. Paul says we don't, we don't throw out the law. It's a map. It's a mirror. It's a muzzle. Let's go. Two pitfalls on both sides of the road, and they're opposed to each other. The first one's legalism, and the second one's another big word. Sorry for all the big words this morning. Antinomianism. The first word, legalism, means your approach to the law is checking boxes, right? God says, give me a day that honors me. Legalism says, okay, here are the 50 things that you can and should definitely do on that day. Make sure you don't do this, 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 or this, 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 and that, right? goes way beyond what God wanted us to do, right? That's legalism. That takes God's law and adds to it, right? The other danger on the other side of the road is anti-nomianism. Anti meaning anti. 
nomos meaning law, right, in Greek. So that means against the law. That's the other side of the coin, which says, well, I don't have a law. I'm freed by grace. Bro, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm free. Grace, freedom. I don't have, I don't have the law. That was for the Jewish people with the funny hair and the long robes. I don't have that. That's not true. We do. We're just not going to earn our salvation by it. It's still the law of God that we still have to follow. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we have to look at the law in radical fulfillment of what Jesus came to do, and we follow it. But justification by faith is our foundation for obeying the law. Church, there may not be a more important passage in the Bible than Romans 3, 21 to 31. We've got to have the correct view of justification by faith in order to live the way God has intended us to live. He isn't some fickle God, like the God of water being appeased by volcanoes who demanded a sacrifice to go into the volcanoes, rather. Justification is a gift from our abundantly gracious God. It answers the biggest question we need to address as human beings. How are we justified. We know we're sinners. How are we justified in front of a perfect holy God? I heard a quote this week. The guy said, every person's looking for justification. I thought that was good. Every person is looking for justification, right? Everybody wants to assert themselves in whatever way that they want to be seen, right? But this is true justification. We can't do it ourselves through any obedience. Justification is a work of God. And then it goes on to bear fruit in our obedience to the law in our lives. Justification by faith is the foundation then for obeying the law. Yet we have to be aware of the dangers of legalism and antinomianism. We go on after we are justified to obey him. We do good works. And we bring much glory to him in our lives. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit in our identity, in our destiny, in our eternity. And it's all because church, Jesus, God, three in one as we just sung, is both just and the justifier. Father, we thank you for this passage, this deep passage that has such great significance for us understanding how you have fulfilled the plan, how you have put forward our sacrifice to satisfy your just wrath for sin, to satisfy your holiness, Lord. Lord, help us to walk in the truth of this. If there are those here today that don't know this, God, would you open their eyes? Would you grant them that faith? Would they believe? And would you do as you promised, justify them, declare them innocent? Lord, for us who have Cause us to walk in obedience to your law as we glorify you. May we look at it rightly and biblically, and may we live lives that don't fall short of the glory of God, but radiate the glory of God as best we can through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.